Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you at? Uh, home or is it office? This is my home office. Yeah. This is yeah. a room that's like part gear storage, part my office, part like we have that whole wall is empty because we project movies up there. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Cyril, your host, and welcome to my podcast that I called I Really Want to Do This. In this podcast, I interview guests from all walks of life and try to understand the various ways that different types of people with different backgrounds and experiences succeed in achieving their goals in their very own ways. Think of the past 10 years in your own life. Have you had a personal goal, an objective? Maybe you call it a dream of doing this one thing. You really want to do that one thing, whatever it may be, but for some reason, you never succeeded in making it actually happen. Well, by showcasing successful achievers and asking them how they did it, I sincerely hope that this podcast will give you some ideas and maybe answers on where to start, how to proceed, in order to actually do that one thing that you really want to do. Hi everyone, welcome to the I Really Want to Do This podcast. I'm Cyril, your host, and today we're so lucky to have a friend of mine on the podcast. Her name is Laura. How are Hello. you, Laura? Hello, I'm doing good. <laughs> How are you, Cyril? Oh my God, I'm feeling better now, guys. If you could see, we're on the Zoom call. I'm only showing the audio now, but I can see her. She's got a smile always away to her ears. <laughs> and you're always like this. Laura, you're always happy. Oh, man. I know. I think you're always happy, too, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't I, think, I don't know how else to back be. to me. I'm talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's tough because I, I, I think it's because I'm such a big extrovert. And I like, I really just love people and hanging around people. So whenever I'm outside, especially after the pandemic for two years, I'm just like, yeah. yay, I'm interacting with people. <laughs> but you're gen genuinely a people mm -hmm. person. Like you loved, like you would love everyone that you meet. Right? Mm, I think after 8 a.m., that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> but before that, and it, depending on like the strength of the coffee, it could go either way. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah. seriously, you're you're so in your work or your activities, you like you love to be in groups. Mm -hmm. And then okay, so the definition of an extrovert, I think, is you get re-energized. You're like you 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 get more energy in your batteries by being with other people. That's what I am. Like I want to feel better. I go see people. The introvert would be you get re-energized by being on your own or somehow, you know, more in a quiet situation. You're a total extrovert. Yeah, complete. Like on the Myers-Briggs all the way to the E. If I'm alone for more than three hours, I, I might as well be asleep. That's that's kind of how I feel. I don't know if you feel that way. <laughs> oh, true. I go home, like, my girlfriend's not here. Like, what do I want to do? I call my friends. Hey, can I show up? <laughs> yes, yes. And I'll go over to my neighbor's house. What you doing? <laughs> yeah, but 
I'm working on it. I'm trying to be, I mean, I love to be by myself. Don't get me wrong. But if I have to choose, I'll totally go to see friends. I just love it. Yeah. All right. Let's keep going with, with you. It's about you today. So tell us about where were you born? Um, where do you live now? Where where did you grow up? You tell us about your childhood, your family. I mean, in your, in your own words, introduce yourself to us, please. Definitely. Well, uh, I'm originally from the southeastern United States, uh, Savannah, Georgia, uh, more specifically Tybee Island um, in coastal Georgia. You're from an island? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> My, I you know, most of my childhood was on the water. And so when I'm landlocked, it feels really weird. But um, my, my parents, you know, have always lived on the water for the most part as well. So my dad, my parents are divorced, and they got divorced when I was two. Uh, but each of them lived on separate islands outside of Savannah, Georgia, but still pretty close to each other. So uh, that was, I was born in 1988. I hope it's okay to reveal my age. <laughs> of course, you can do as much as you want. And uh, up until age 11, I was in Savannah, Georgia. And at that time, um, my mom got remarried and we moved to Seattle. And so I did oh, wow. middle and high school in Seattle, Washington. So that's a lot of people when they find out I'm from the South uh, are curious why I don't have an accent. And that's mostly because I moved in middle school. And as most people recall from middle school, you just, for the most part, want to blend in. Like, whatever yeah. you do, don't be different. <laughs> don't, yeah. don't stand out. And I stood out because I, I didn't think I had an accent, but I did have an accent. And so I watched TV for that summer after we moved. And I unlearned my accent. I'd, like, watch Lizzie McGuire. And I'd be like, how does Lizzie McGuire talk? And um, then middle and high school in Seattle. Then I moved to uh, North Carolina uh, for college. Okay. Uh, outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Went to a small school called Davidson College. And most people know about Davidson because that's where Steph Curry, who plays for the Golden State Warriors, went. He and I were the same year. Um, wow. And we were, were you playing be- for the, the team? Yeah. Uh, while I was there, he and the team at the time, there were a lot of other talented players. We got further in the NCAA March Madness tournament than the college has ever gotten. So we made it to the Elite Eight and lost to Kansas. And Kansas won this year again. They're like an institution. And um, that year, too, 2008, Kansas won the title. So, yeah, I've been known about Steph. Since 2007, so. Cool, I want him on the podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I I do have a few friends that still, like, aren't good touch friends with him. with him and in touch with him, but uh, yeah. I think he's kind of busy. Maybe this summer. We'll uh, see. After the season, yeah. Yeah, after the season, for sure. <laughs> I'll be around. You know, the podcast is going to be there forever because it's a... It's not my podcast is not about having popularity or being growing. It's just about me enjoying talking to amazing people and just recording it and sharing with the world. So it's gonna live forever. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Did you have any siblings? I have a little sister. Yeah. She is 
uh, eight years younger than me. So she, she has always felt like a really little sister. Um, and she's super creative. She's really sassy. She doesn't let me get away with anything. Like, really? You know how siblings are, especially yeah. if they're younger. They're like, I want to meet her. How come <laughs> Laura fun. gets to do this? How come Laura got a phone at 14? You know, stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> um, and yeah, but then after college in North Carolina, and that's where I really got into more into kayaking and the outdoors. And that really changed the trajectory of my life quite a bit. And then I lived in China for two years. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Uh, after I graduated, I lived in uh, a small village called Luodang in Yunnan province. So I was about uh, eight hours uh, near the Burmese border. So okay. kind of far out in southwestern China in the middle of nowhere. So um, I was Wait, there. How did you get there? Tell me that. So there's a program in the United States called uh, Teach for America, where recent graduates will go and they'll get a summer of intensive training and then they'll go to underserved schools all over the US, like in the Mississippi Delta or inner city LA. Um, And this was Teach for China. So it was applying the same model of kind of reinvigorating um, the cohort of new teachers or just trying to make the education profession or a career in education more competitive and attractive to recent graduates, but it was in rural China. So in China, there's, it's, the divide is more urban and rural rather than, I mean, there are definitely some like socioeconomic gaps and just income inequality, but a lot of the lines are divided around just urban and rural. So yeah. A lot of rural schools and rural students are consistently behind and have limited access to opportunities. And so it was a, an organization where half of the teachers were Chinese and we all were recent graduates from college, so super young. And then half of us were American and there were a few Brits um, and one German. And we were trained in... Um, what what age group did you teach and what did you teach? I taught middle school. So I taught seventh grade uh, and that where I was, that's like the middle year. Um, and that age, you know, because it was serving such a, a rural population, a lot of kids of a different ages kind of got batched together. So I had students mm. who were as young as 11 and as old as 14 in one class. Um, and there were a lot of them. I was like, 22 and teaching my first year I taught a class of 56 students wow yeah and I I had worked you know I'd studied Chinese in college and the reason why I wanted to do this was because like I had you know I would reached a certain level of being able to speak Chinese and uh, the biggest problem was that in this area of China there's a lot of ethnic minorities that aren't Han Chinese and don't speak Mandarin And most of my students were from minority communities and uh, they had another, they spoke other dialects and languages. So they basically had a secret language. (laughs) As a middle school teacher, that's the worst nightmare, right? To be teaching, you know, and having invested all this time learning Chinese and then you get there and they speak a different kind of Chinese than you. (laughs) So 
Um, slowly I learned more and more dialect and I could understand when they were like cursing at me behind my back. But yeah. the first year was rough. Um, yeah. And you stayed two years? Yeah, the program, it, it lasts two years. So Okay, well, that was quite key in your life, wasn't it? Like, Oh, yeah. Going overseas 22 is really young. Yeah, I thought, um, I thought I knew a lot. And it was like the first time in my life that I really, really felt um, this like deep degree of loneliness. Like talk about being an extrovert and like imagine, it, it's not that I wasn't surrounded by people, but people who were from such a different background than you that it was just so hard to relate. And most of the other teachers were in there like mid thirties or even forties and fifties. And, you know, you just got out of college and you're still yeah. in like party yeah. mode kind of. And then you go from that to being surrounded by, you know, a bunch of 12 year olds and, you know, maybe one other person your age. There was only one other American, Kristen, who was one of my uh, coworkers at the school and good friends. And then, yeah, other than that, it's just a lot of people who've grown up in rural China. That and before that, like had you travel um, like overseas a little bit or was it you know, like yeah. Europe maybe? Or? Oh yeah, I my family on my mom's side has a travel company. And so I, I grew up traveling a lot um, to Europe, Caribbean, Mexico, Canada. I'd been to China um, before and Korea. Um, before going and doing this placement. So I knew what I was getting myself into. Like I'd, I'd study abroad in Beijing for a year and oh, I traveled that? extensively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I was in college, I was in Beijing, like right after the 2008 Olympics, so. Okay, yeah. that's why you spoke Chinese. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, so I, I knew I wanted to get out and have an adventure, I think that's like my north star it's like i just i just want to keep having adventures it's my personality type yes <laughs> that's why i get along so well with you <laughs> i i wonder have you ever done the enneagram or do you know your enneagram yes i'm type, type? seven yeah of course yeah i'm type seven <laughs> you're too yeah oh my yeah. god <laughs> maybe Maybe your podcasters like it'd be interesting to look back and see how many sevens you've interviewed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I think sevens are okay. You have the the function in seven and the dysfunction in seven. And now I'm wonder if I'm starting to be at the dysfunction in seven because I'm so looking forward to something exciting all the time. Mm -hmm that, you know, in like, there's a, the functioning seven is exciting for everything. Like, oh, I'm going to do this, do this, do this. The enthusiast, right? But it could be, there's a negative. And sometimes I feel like, okay, I'm 45. Maybe it's time that I, I'm, I'm a little bit less seven. Oh no, never be less seven. I don't think I will ever be able to, but <laughs> sometimes I'm like, okay, settle down, stop dreaming about doing so many things. I think, I think, there's definitely a way to 
maintain what makes a seven a seven and like that thirst for adventure but in a healthy way you know what i mean oh yeah yeah. while you're like still keeping your commitments you're not running away from like hard things yeah like not like in a physical sense but on like a mental health sense and like um but yeah i feel you i'm like man i can't just keep on doing like giant career pivots every five years like i gotta (laughs) listen this year Okay, granted, you know, I'm in the middle of, uh, you know, two, two things where I, I did my first attempt to cross the ocean and I had to wait one year. So I couldn't really get a full-time job. So what, what did I do? I had, well, I have my online website, but I was a diver for two months, <laughs> cleaning the holes. I worked as a sea trick, you know, it's a kayaker, um, you know, coaching some, some groups. Uh, what else did I do? I mean, I, right now I'm working for this company and it's an electric motorboat. And I'm actually loving it. I think I'm getting addicted to changing job every three months. <laughs> it sounds fun. It's, it's like, so fun. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that's why so many sevens are doing jobs like consultants, right? Where you can like dive deep on a new project like every three months and like, yeah. use your skills but well, not that's have, you have that. to see at it yeah totally like i'm i love new project an exciting project but after six months if there's not something new i could be okay i've done what i wanted to do you know and then pass it on you know i'm not a harvester i'm, I'm a probably a hunter or something yeah <laughs> anyway, it's not about me you always send it back to me what are you doing well, I okay. think it's just interesting, right? Because yeah, it, yeah, it is. Um, tell me about your so okay, so your personality traits when you were a little girl, and how did that evolve with hmm. experiences and life? Well, this might not be surprising, but I had a lot of energy, um, like way more energy and rambunctiousness than my parents knew what to do with, and so. Growing up, I was like, never could sit still. School was really hard. Like I I just wanted to be moving all the time and running or playing. Um, And in elementary school, especially at this time, there was a big push to like medicate kids like me. Like if you can't sit still, if you can't, you know, do your homework and listen and be quiet, something's wrong with you and you need yeah. to take yeah. Ritalin or take Adderall. Yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't know if that was your experience too. No, in France, we don't, we don't put any uh, like disease to a kid. Like if you're hyper energized, you just go run more or like make him tired before you go to school or try to, but we don't put any kind of like, is that ADHD that you say, well, my kid might have, this syndrome of well he's just hyperactive that's it you know totally it, it definitely I I for sure was diagnosed with ADD and luckily my parents like at the time and still my mom was really into like naturopathic medicine and um really looking at like energy and any sort of allergies through a diet lens and nutrition yeah. lens and so uh both of my parents were like, no, we're not going to put her on Ritalin. We're not going to medicate her. But I did, I, I was enrolled since I was age three, three, I was enrolled in different sports teams. And so mm-hmm. it was 
definitely a way for my parents to tire me out so <laughs> so that I wouldn't tire them out. So I was either doing swim team all summer and soccer practice and then horseback riding. And I was really bad at that. And then <laughs> like a whole heap of different activities. And then, yeah. but even then I just like, I love to learn, but I just didn't like sitting still and I didn't like being told what to do. I didn't be like being told that I couldn't do things. So my parents were called into like the teacher's office quite a bit for a random, nothing like, you know, I wasn't fighting anyone. I just like go to the bathroom and never come back, you know? <laughs> and they'd find me just like wandering around the school because I just didn't want to be in the classroom. Um, yeah. Oh my God, your parents must have seen a lot of things. <laughs> they were really kind and really patient with me. Um, and they did, even though they were divorced, they did such a great job of co-parenting and yeah. know, making sure that there's consistency between yeah. households, which That's I really good. appreciated. And yeah, so, but I also, that's when I, I think even when I was young, I didn't find any limits. Like I just, this is gonna sound like callous and like I was a problem child, but like I kind of did what I wanted to do, you know? There so is did your scare. parents get you? That That's how she is, that's how she has to roll and we let her more freedom? Oh yeah, I was just out all the time riding bikes, like with my friends, going to, you know, different people's houses, hanging out at the pool, mm -hmm. going to the river. Like this is all in coastal Georgia, and it was on this small island, and so okay. we basically just like roamed the island as if it were our territory, and like had yeah. all of our hangout spots, and went to my grandma's house, and hung out on okay. the river, stuff like that. Yeah. You wanted to do stuff, you did them. Tell us about the thing that mm. that's the second part of the podcast you really want to do. Like, I'm trying to understand when did the feeling gets born in somebody's mind and, 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 and heart and, and say, okay, this thing, I really want to do this. And tell us about one, one story about, that you, you think would be important to say about this. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things that I've done because I just really wanted to do them, like going to rural China for two years. Yeah. Or, but I think the biggest one was when I went to Taiwan, because that's been in my adult life, this big shift that I've had. Um, and I just as a, on a high level in 2017, my friend Kelly and I did an expedition Uh, around Taiwan on the East Coast. So the coast that's facing the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And we started in the Southern part of the island and wound our way all the way up to the in North kayak. in the kayaks. Mm -hmm. wow. Unsupported, but it's hard to say unsupported because we had stopped yeah. along the way and like run in and get noodles, yeah. like <laughs> and then go keep kayaking, right? Um, So Wait, how did you pick up that place and why, like what, tell me more about that story. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, when you're kind of going down, especially when you're a young adult and you're doing what, what you think is successful for you know, what stage of life you're in. So yep. a lot yep. of my friends and I, 
we're all working at these tech companies and we were you know trying to plot our careers from this sense of like okay where am I going to be in two years am I going to be like the director of product marketing and then the chief marketing officer at this like tech at this tech company and it just the longer I was doing it the more and more I just felt like oh my God, my life is over. <laughs> you know, have you ever done something? Maybe yeah. that's like a seven thing, but it's like being in an office all day felt like oppressive and it felt yeah. like prison. And mm-hmm. I just didn't like, you know, people. And then there's also these like corporate politics and then I just didn't want to get involved in it. And it just would eat away at me. And I remember being, having like a really rough day being at the small office at the small tech company and texting my friend Kelly and being like, uh, like, what is this? We just yeah. need an expedition. Let's do an expedition. Yeah. And she was feeling the same way working, you know, she was working at a kayak shop, but also the sense of just like malaise, like you're wasting your life. And um, she was like, okay, let's do it. And I'm the kind of person well, I'll, I'll just like float a lot of schemes, a lot of ideas out there. But it's not until I have a friend or somebody else that really yeah. is like, okay, I'm committed. We're going to make it happen. Yeah. And then I'm kind of like, oh, oh, we are. But <laughs> <laughs> it actually happens, you know? Yeah. And so she's the kind of person who is like, you know, I'm, I may not come up with the idea, but I'm going to make it happen. They're like the executor. Yeah. Um, and so she was like, okay, let's do it. Where should we do? Where should we go? And I, I have a lot of friends who are Taiwanese American and in our time in China, they were like, you need to go to Taiwan and you need to go to Taiwan. It's like a lot of aspects of Chinese culture that, that I love and appreciate, but it's kind of like, uh, there's like two different ways that Chinese culture has gone. There's like mainland China, how it's been incubated through communism and, you know, for lack of a better word, like this totalitarianistic state they're in now. And then there's Taiwan, which is, you know, there are still echoes of like a dictatorship. Like the history is not that um, like black and white between like mainland China and Taiwan, but it's definitely a place where there's a lot more openness. Um, It's just a lot, uh, happier in a lot of ways okay. there's a lot less um there's definitely like eras of suffering like you can't have a massive yeah, civil war like what happened in like the 1940s and 50s and not have a fallout but and it's a lot more like historically cosmopolitan because it opened up a lot more to the west and other parts of asia where China at a time when China was a little bit more inward and closed off and isolated. So you see a different version of Chinese culture. It's like Taiwanese culture that's on display there. And so speaking Chinese and or, or Mandarin and really being fascinated by it, um, China was definitely, or Taiwan was definitely at the top okay. of the list. Did you hear about anybody kayaking there? Like, is that beautiful is it how's the wind how's the tides how's the oh my what's gosh. the weather it's beautiful it's like um 
it's tropical. So it's very much, it's also, they're really tall mountains. Like most of the mountains are around 200 meters or higher. And so imagine like Kauai. Yeah. But in Asia and a lot more, um, less volcanic and more like granite and wow. like still lush, but with just a lot more people and a lot more culture and cities. It's just like, I don't think people realize how incredibly beautiful it is. Um, or if folks have been to Southern Japan, like Okinawa or other parts of the Pacific, it's, it's definitely like mm. that. Um, beautiful water, like Celestine, crystal blue. Uh, and then the North is a little bit more uh, cold sometimes, but in the South and Kanding where we started, it's very tropical. So, and then the food is probably the best food I've ever eaten in my life. Like I know you're French and I have to say <laughs> French food is delicious, but did you hear that Julian? French food's delicious, <laughs> but Taiwanese food is on, it's just on another level. Um, so how long did you paddle and how was the whole expedition we were there for a little bit shy of two months and we taught classes for two weeks and just got supplies and got ready. And then we were on the water for a month and we were really taking our time because there were no charts. Um, there's only like the only chart we could find was this giant chart of the island. So we planned the whole trip using Google Maps and Google Earth. Uh, okay, so tell me about this specifically. How long was it before you started the trip that you had decided to go? And what was the steps you took from the moment you decided to the moment you left? Did you were too? So did you give her task to do? Did you what was your method? I'm interested in this. That's a really great question. So uh, we did some research at first to see if, if folks had circumnavigated it, because we originally wanted to circumnavigate. And someone had, and the record was a little bit over a month to fully circumnavigate it. And at the time it was, uh, they had circumnavigated when there was like relative ease and tensions between China and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when we were wanting to do it, and especially as you see now, there's more escalation. So we did some research, that was the first step. It's like, what's the feasibility of being yeah. able to circumnavigate? Um, and we both shared that goal. We we're just asking people. We found folks uh, who were kayakers in Taiwan, and they were incredibly generous with just so much information. Mm. Um, and the overwhelming recommendation we got was it's not worth it to circumnavigate. And the main reason is that every time, on the west coast, or the coast that faces China, you cross a port or a military zone where there's a, a fort or a base. You have to tell them exactly when you want to cross and where so that they can send a, a boat to escort you. Oh, wow. So it's either that or you break the law. And I, I didn't want to break the law because I, I want to go to Taiwan <laughs> again. Um, so to make it easy, we're just like, we're just going to do the East Coast. And 
it was a trade-off because the East Coast is a little bit more exposed. It's a lot more exposed mm. to wind, currents, of course, swell because it's just facing yeah. the ocean. Um, and you could see it too. Like a lot of the towns we pulled up to like hadn't really been rebuilt since the last major typhoon hit. So we're like, okay, now that we know what we're going to do and like the broad strokes of what it's going to look like, we shifted our focus to like funding. Um, mm -hmm. And there's this really cool, I don't know if it's still in existence, but it's a paddle sport specific adventure grant called the Hobkey grant. And it's a public vote. So you have to like, really promote your your expedition and then folks are encouraged to vote mm -hmm. and whichever expedition gets the most votes wins. So we put together a website, a plan. Um, we applied for other grants, but this was like the linchpin grant. So if we got the hot key grant and I think it, it's only, I think it was like $2,000. I shouldn't say only because like for an adventure grant or a paddle sports grant, that's really good. Mm -hmm. um, but we were just trying to get our flights paid for. Right, right. <clears throat> and Did you buy a kayak there? Like the logistics, how was it? So we had a sponsor. So after we won the grant, which we won, and that meant like, okay, we better do this so we don't waste the grant money. We went and found sponsors. And so we were lucky. Um, Kelly was working at California Canoe and Kayak and had a lot of connections within the paddle sports industry. And then I was also teaching a lot and teaching kayaking then, and she was too. So we got uh, a lot of gear, which is awesome. Yep. Um, and Point 0.65, a Swedish kayak manufacturer, actually builds a lot of kayaks in mainland China. And so they sponsored us and said, okay, we'll, we'll ship a container to Taiwan. Oh. So yeah. um, great. The thing is, like most fiberglass or composite boats, the fast boats are made in the UK <laughs> or here in the US. But plastic boats, durable yeah. but slower, are mostly made in China. And so we got plastic boats, which, you know, was great for not wrecking the boat for a lot yeah. of these rocky, crazy landings we had to do. But it meant we couldn't go as fast as we wanted to go a lot of times. Yeah. Um, and then we also got a grant from the American Canoe Association and then folks who were just inspired. Like I totally underestimated just like family, friends and community members that wanted to support us. And so yeah. just like letting folks support us. So you, you knew you couldn't self-funded. So you said, okay, I need to create something tangible like a website and, and a PowerPoint presentation maybe or okay what's what do we want to promote and blah blah like an actual project yeah mm -hmm. yeah I think the goal we could have dug into our savings and self-funded it but I think the goal was to use it as kind of this community building mm. uh, you know kind of in the way of a kickstarter right like you could just start a company and privately or self-fund it, right? Or you can do a Kickstarter and really use that platform of building support financially yeah. for your company yeah. to bring more attention to what you're doing. Yeah. Um, 
and build an audience around it. So we, we chose the latter. And also we're both, you know, professional paddle sports um, coaches. And so uh, it's, we didn't want to make it a secret that we were doing this. It was like a, a really good thing for our careers as well as an adventure. Right. Yeah, there's that side too, that it could be a line on your resume that could be worthwhile for what you do. Yeah, right. It's like you get that. It's it's not just an expedition. It's like you know, and it's partly like a, a life, one of those life defining moments and experiences. But at the same time, it's just as much as like a major project you're doing for for your yeah. master's thesis, or you know, it's kind of like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, right. So was it like like the start of a way of thinking? saying, well, I did something great that is fun, but is also building something for the, for the moment and for the future. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like having that expedition and that experience of wayfinding and creating something out of nothing. It's just always useful, right? And building mm -hmm. relationships and building a network, um, I still have people reaching out to me today for advice for paddling in Taiwan. And it's kind of cool, right? To see, okay, yeah, yeah. Like, it's worth it to still <laughs> maintain that website. <laughs> yeah. I think that people that do anything out of passion is worth it. And you can always resell it the way you want. Like I was 25 and did that trip around the world. It was just after my studies. And people say, what? You just, you know, you need to earn some money and pay back your loans for And you start start your career. So there's so many reasons not to do it. But I did that. I said, okay, whatever. And then when I came back, I say, what? You did a year? Yeah, it's great. Okay, actually, I need someone who can op open a subsidiary in Argentina. I need somebody somebody who's not gullible and doesn't come out of the university. So you have, and that was my point. Like, maybe for some people, whatever you do is not great. Okay, forget those. But whatever you do that is out of passion, you can always sell it positively like maybe you didn't think the taiwan trip would be great but then you could say yeah i did a trip in taiwan okay cool so uh, we're starting a a tour in taiwan and you'll lead that and you know what you never know how it's going to turn out oh a hundred percent and i think it also from like an internal perspective it taught me more about myself than any other experience in my life except for maybe teaching middle school in China <laughs> that was like a very you know extreme example but you know it was almost like the first few days there was this like detox like this withdrawal from being in the corporate world or in the tech world where I'd wake up at midnight and be like I forgot to schedule that email yeah. <laughs> and you have to be like wait you're in a tent on a beach in the middle of nowhere in Taiwan, like relax. Yeah. All you need to worry about is going to sleep so you don't bonk tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and once you get in the groove and then learn about like your physical limits and where your mind goes when, you know, you have those days where you're like, oh crap, like this could go really bad. Or I don't know if I could, can do this or mm. all those thoughts and how you quell those and build strategies to mm -hmm. coach yourself. And, you know, that was one of the first times where, like, I had to really coach myself. There wasn't somebody around. You know, Kelly was there, but she was also struggling. So 
Like, yeah. not that this is a whole bunch of struggle, but that this is really where you have to like, lean into deep conversation with yourself. And so tell me more about this, about the problems you might have encountered in those two months. Some maybe you have foreseen, some you didn't see coming. And how did you cope? How do you cope with roadblocks in general? Mm. So with all of the problems we encountered were very different and at different times. But uh, I don't want to cast the entire trip as like challenging because there was a lot about this trip that was like delightful and easy and wonderful. I think every expedition is like that. There's like that duality. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it can hop in and out in the matter of like seconds. <laughs> um, but one of our first nights on the expedition by ourselves, uh, we were in this town in the south that was one of those towns that looked like it had been hit really hard by a typhoon. And like people were still using a building that has kind of was kind of falling apart and hadn't really, they didn't have the resources to repair. And there was like debris everywhere from not being moved after the ocean and storm surge had brought it in. And there were a few facilities, but it, it kind of seemed like the last hurricane that hit it had forced a good number of people to relocate. And um, there's also a really strong fishing industry. So there's sometimes a, a little bit of an underbelly of sketchiness from people who maybe have been taken aboard onto Uh, fishing vessels against their will. Yeah, I heard that. Yes, slavery. Yes, I heard yeah. that. Yeah. And then we definitely saw that in some of these port towns where you had different types of indentured servitude with these people working on fishing boats. Um, so we were in this kind of edgy town and we packed up, you know, got or we unpacked got our tents up or was cooking dinner and then this guy came and started asking us questions and kind of like a scruffy looking mm -hmm. dude but just we don't like, trust that guy yeah. not fully with it yeah like we already knew something was up and i was just like asking questions and answering questions and kelly was just like can you ask him to leave and i was like i don't want to be rude kelly And then yeah. eventually, yeah, I was just like, hey, we're trying to eat our dinner and we have a long day. And then he like kind of sauntered off. And then we both, you know, secured our boats, went to sleep. The sun went down. And in the middle of the night, Kelly, like I wake up and I'm jarred to awake. And Kelly is standing at the opening of my tent and she has a knife <laughs> in her hand. Her knife that's on her PFD. She's like, wake up and I was like okay what's what's going on Kelly she's like that guy is back and I woke up and he was watching me sleep oh my god and now he won't go away and it was one of those first moments where we were just like I reached for the phone she came in the tent and we both were like we heard him kind of pacing outside the tent and I think he was just mentally unstable and maybe at this point drunk probably mm -hmm. but uh <laughs> Out of a reflex, I picked up the cell phone that I had that had a Chinese or a Taiwanese SIM card. And I was like, I'll just call the police. And then she was like, how do you call the police in Taiwan? Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, 
I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the first problem. And then the second problem was like, do they, yeah, how do, how do they even get to us? We're in the middle of nowhere. There's like not a police station here. And we just had to like, then we both realized, okay, we just got to figure this out. Like, and I got out of the tent and stood up and, you know, I'm like a pretty tall, big person relative to, relative to him. So I just started like yelling at him to leave in Chinese. And then he motioned to uh, one of our kayaks and tried to start pushing our kayak into the water. <laughs> and at that point, I just like charged oh. him and started yelling in English. And I think that scared yeah. me. Wow. Um, so that's like one of the first times. And after that night, we both couldn't sleep and we were just thinking, what did we get ourselves into? Yeah. But then luckily, we never had a weird interaction like that. And more often than not, we had Taiwanese people who were just super impressed by what we were doing and lovely and generous. And they wanted to come up and bring us to their house to cook meals or give us food or presents. Or one time we left our boats on a beach to go get water and people left fresh cut flowers on our boats. (laughs) Just like, like overwhelming generosity and kindness. So this was a really intense outlier but the fact that it happened so early on really put us on edge the first few days so this project lasted two lasted two months and did you have any doubt that you would um like you could not succeed in finishing or you said okay we're doing this and did it happen generally the way you thought it would I don't think it happened the way I thought it would, but it, it was better. I think it never does. Yeah. <laughs> there was, we, we were given not such great advice when it came to the wind. And like, as you know, the wind often for distant paddles is like the make or break factor in a lot of situations. And we, for a, for a period of like a week and a half, had the gnarliest headwind. Like by the time we hit even just 10 a.m., the winds would jack up to 15 knots and progressively get to the point where sometimes it was at 30 knots and we were just fighting and fighting. So if we didn't finish our paddling goal for the day and we weren't off the water by 3 p.m., we could sometimes be in five to six feet rolling seas with a headwind of 30 knots and have to deal with negotiations.